Lily Flag Signal, Episode 7, Milling Around, Part 1, Hine and Child Labor Laws. In researching the mills, I realized I could pretty easily break down this topic further into multiple episodes. Seeing as how there was just so much to cover, and how two-part season finales with cliffhangers are a thing, I thought that's what I'd do with this episode. You're on part one right now, in which we'll be talking about child labor laws and a photographer who used images of Huntsville's Merrimack and Dallas Mills in the 1910s to bring about protections for kids in industrial work. Part two, next week, will be a more in-depth look at the various mills of Huntsville, Lincoln, Lowe, Merrimack, Dallas, and a few others that don't have the same name recognition, and their surrounding mill villages where workers lived. After the show's winter hiatus, I'll be discussing the role of unions and strikes in Huntsville's manufacturing history to start off season two. So today, let's discuss child labor laws, antique batteries, a local coffee shop, some 110-year-old photos, and a Charles Dickens reference I had to use Sparknotes to understand because I never read the book. Welcome to Lily Flag Signal, a Huntsville history podcast where your host is finally caving and making a multi-part episode rather than trying to cram everything into a single show. We're here to talk about mills, including Dallas, Lincoln, Lowe, and Merrimack, and how they impacted not just Huntsville, but the entire U.S. Two of these mills are gone forever, though many things still carry their names, and the other two are well-known landmarks that serve now as office space, restaurants, art studios, and more. There are others still, time is somewhat forgotten, or that went through name changes, like the Huntsville Cotton Mill, Madison Spinning Mill, and W.H. Rowe Knitting Company. In fact, the Chamber of Commerce's 1905 promotional booklet for the city describes it as, quote, Today, a great commercial and industrial center, ten cotton mills, handsome churches, excellent schools, beautiful homes, end quote. It also says that these mills have a combined 200,000 spindles and over 5,000 looms, and that they're processing 50,000 bales of cotton annually. Spindles, by the way, are the sticks used to twirl fibers into yarn, so if you ever see a photo of someone in a textile mill standing in front of a bunch of vertical rods with a string wrapped around them, it's that. Looms are used to weave threads into cloth, so in fabric making, that step will come a bit after the spindles. With all this industry, there was a need for cheap labor, and that's where children come into our story. You know who can fit between machinery and reach their small hands in places adults can't? Children! You know who's cheaper to pay than an adult? Children! You know who didn't have any legal requirement to attend school in the early 1900s? Children! Don't get me wrong, the working conditions weren't great for the adults either. They also had long hours and low wages, much of which was paid right back to the employer for things like rent in their small homes constructed by the mill to lease out to employees. The same heavy and spinning parts that could maim a child could just as easily maim an adult. The mills were lit mostly by sunlight from large windows during the day. Though Merrimack, the mill in West Huntsville that I'll be discussing the most today, wasn't open at night, the other mills in the area were. If it was rainy, nighttime, or really anything other than bright and sunny out, the workers had to rely on dim oil lamps. The mills weren't yet electrified in the early 1900s, and children were reported as making 12.5 cents per night. Some tasks were considered better fits for children than others. This includes sweeping lint and other debris from the floor and doffing, removing a bolt of completed fabric from the loom machine. They also filled batteries. Fun fact regarding electrical engineering history, early batteries, such as those used to provide electric power in mills in this time period, were refillable. If your battery died, you could simply add more acid to it to charge it back up again. Though the mills didn't have electricity for lighting, there were some parts of the looms that required electricity, and thus these batteries. So that's totally a thing you could hire a 10-year-old to help with, 
and they did. There were also times that children had to stand on crates to even see what they were doing on the machines. In 1955, for the sesquicentennial marking 150 years since John Hunt moved to the area, the Huntsville Manufacturing Company produced a booklet called the Huntsville Parker, Historical Edition, looking back on their history. This manufacturing company was the descendant, if you will, of Merrimack Mill, and the editor for this booklet was Sarah Huff Fisk, so you know it was good. She was an accountant for the manufacturing company for 35 years and is also one of the most cited historians for this show. There are lots of old photos of the mill and its employees, as well as a general history of the factory and its neighborhood, told mostly by people who were there firsthand. There's a disclaimer in the front that I want to read here as well. Quote, In preparing the history contained on the following pages, every effort has been made to give names, dates, and facts as correctly as possible. However, since we were dependent on human memory for much of the information given, we cannot vouch for the absolute correctness of every detail. End quote. I found it intriguing, then, to read what they had to say about life in 1900 in Merrimack. Quote, At that time, there were no laws in existence restricting children from working, regardless of their age. Therefore, boys and girls seven and eight years old were encouraged by their parents to go to work to help to support the family. Fathers of large families were often accused by the local newspapers of those days of loafing while their young children supported the family. Actually, the children's work in the Merrimack Mill was not too difficult. They tended only anywhere from two to six looms and from half side to a full side of spinning frame. They had time to rest and even to play while on the jobs. But the hours were long and prevented them from attending school. Therefore, the education they got was meager indeed. End quote. It's interesting to me how normalized this was, and the attitude of, we had to work, but it wasn't all that bad, fascinates me. I'm curious how much of this optimism being expressed is because the former workers have nostalgic memories from their childhood, mill employment or no. I will say, and I'm in no way defending child labor here, that from what I've seen in other writings and photos, there were a number of social activities taking place in the mill village. This village was where the employees of the mill lived, mostly in rental houses owned by the mill. It was a pretty common setup at the time. They eventually had a baseball team, dances, picnics, etc. I wouldn't say that negates the dangers of sending children to work in factories, but that strong sense of community would explain a lot of the nostalgia. On a more cynical note, it's also possible that because this was being written as a publication for the mill where they used to work, the former child laborers felt they should say something positive. And as somewhat of a correction, there were some laws about child labor on the state level, but they disappeared before the turn of the century. In February of 1887, a law was passed that allowed for a fine of between $5 and $50 for compelling a woman or child under 18 to work more than eight hours in a day in a mechanical or manufacturing business, or allowing someone under 14 years to work more than eight hours a day in a factory or other manufacturing shop, or allowing anyone under 15 to work in a mine. Okay, it could be better, but it's a start. Would have been even nicer if it hadn't been repealed seven years later in 1894. According to the chairman of the Alabama Child Labor Committee in 1911, Dr. B.J. Baldwin, quote, It was repealed through the efforts of a lobby sent to Montgomery by the cotton mills, headed by a superintendent of one of the New England mills which had lately been established in this state, end quote. Hmm. In 1902, the Huntsville Times had an article about proposed child labor laws in which they said, quote, The mill owners throughout the South are loud in their protestations of belief in compulsory education. This clause will assist them in carrying out their excellent intentions, which sometimes fail to produce results at present. Near one large mill whose president declares himself earnestly in favor of compulsory education, there is a public school. This was so poorly attended owing to the, all the children being needed in the mill that it had to be removed. End quote. Public schools were not new at this time. Huntsville City Schools was founded in 1875, but children weren't yet required to attend. 
In the late 1800s, one could attend a segregated public school, but the idea of everyone in a certain age bracket having to go to class just wasn't a thing yet. There was another state law regarding factory workers' ages in 1903. No one under 10 could work at all. No one under 12 unless their family circumstances required it and only up to 66 hours per week. No one under 13 working between 7pm and 6am, and no one under 16 working those hours more than 48 hours a week. Yikes. A law that the Alabama Child Labor Committee president called more acceptable was enacted in 1907. This one set the age limit at 12 without exception, and only permitted nighttime work for those over age 16. There was also supposed to be an inspector for cotton mills and factories to make sure these rules were being followed. One issue, though. For the employer to be held liable, they had to have, quote, knowingly violated, end quote, the law. The companies essentially had an oopsie, I didn't mean to, please don't yell at me, clause built in. And then came Lewis Hine, a photographer on a mission. Hine, originally from Wisconsin, visited various mills, canneries, and other industrial locations around the country as part of an assignment from the National Child Labor Committee. The National Child Labor Committee, or NCLC, was formed in 1904 in large part thanks to Reverend Edgar Murphy from Montgomery, Alabama. After it was chartered by Congress in 1907, the NCLC set out to gain public attention for their cause, and what better way than with photographs of children at work? Hines spent 16 years on this project, from 1908 to 1924, while presenting his photos to lawmakers as well as to the general public to try to provoke sympathy and support. These photos are really powerful, and while they all tell stories, some are in sets that show a progression of life as a child worker. One example is a collection of four photos of an eight-year-old named Phoebe Thomas. In the first photo, she's walking to the cannery where she cuts sardines. In the next, she's running home later that day because she's cut her thumb badly. Then Hine has a photo of her with her bandage on her hand, and lastly, her a week later and back at work with the same knives. It's really poignant, but also not for the squeamish. Based on the dates of the photos, Hines visited Huntsville in 1910 and 1913. The Library of Congress has over 5,000 of Hines' photos from his child labor investigations, including 37 pictures from Huntsville, available for online viewing. I definitely recommend checking these out after you listen. A great thing about all these pictures from a research perspective, aside from the general fascination with seeing a literal snapshot of daily life from another time, is the captions Hine wrote with many of the photos. These give a lot of insight into what's going on, especially since, to modernize, these can just look like a collection of pictures of kids from the early 1900s. Context is important, though, so I want to describe a few of the pictures and what Hine had to say about them. Hine had 11 of the boys working at Merrimack do a somewhat organized photo, with some standing and a few behind them sitting on a wooden fence. They all have hats and jackets on, but you can see the rips in some of their clothes. They look like they're probably 8 to 10 years old. Quote, group of some of the youngest workers in the Merrimack mills. Everyone has a steady job. End quote. For another collection of photos of kids, mostly in jackets, standing and talking amongst themselves outside of a brick building on November of 1910, Hine wrote, quote, Closing hour, Sunday noon, at Dallas Mill. Every child in photos, so far as I was able to ascertain, works in the mill. When I questioned some of the youngest boys as to their ages, they said they were 12, and then other boys said they were lying, which sentiment I agreed with, end quote. The concept of lying about one's age to get a job isn't an uncommon one, in present day or historically, and I found quite a few examples of this in Hines' photos where he wrote about parents and kids falsifying ages so that they could get work. On one group photo that included kids and adults, some of whom were without shoes, Hines simply wrote, they would not tell me the truth about their ages. In another picture, there's a little boy walking towards a group of other kids waiting at the gates to Merrimack. Hines says, quote, Pinky Durham, one of the smallest sweepers in the Merrimack mill. Been sweeping for several months. The school record shows he is eight years old now, but because his mother insists he is 12, he is permitted to work. 
very small and very immature. The mother said that the family record, quote, ain't here, end quote, end quote. Hein took another picture with Pinky later, and his sister Eliza, in front of one of the mill houses. His sister, who is supposedly 12, but definitely looks younger, has an odd stance, with most of her weight on one leg and the other knee bent funny. In his accompanying comments, Hein wrote that she had recently had her leg broken when a boy with a doffing box ran into her in the mill. A doffing box would be what the finished bolts of fabric were carried in, so this wouldn't have been light. There's one photo of a boy in a button shirt, pants with suspenders, and a bow tie standing in front of a wooden porch. The clothes are wrinkled and dirty, just as almost all of the kids' clothes are in these pictures, and the pants look too big for him. Quote, Frank Baldwin, been spinning and doffing in Merrimack Mills for a year and a half, so he went to work at at least 11 years old, if we can believe the family record, which says he is 13 this month, but indications are that the record has been changed. End quote. Hein featured Frank's brother, too, a younger boy who is photographed in front of the same porch without shoes and in dirty pants with mud or grease on the knees. Quote, Georgie Baldwin, according to the family record, which says born August 15, 1903, he has just been working nearly a year at the Merrimack Manufacturing Mills. When his father read me the dates from the family record, he raised the ages, making the boy 12 now, but I saw the dates myself and got it straight. The father is rather old and seems to be ailing. End quote. Remember, this was before the days of social security numbers. Those came out in the mid-1930s with FDR, and people just weren't tracked as well as they are now. That 1903 Alabama child labor law required employees only to have an affidavit signed by a child's parent certifying that the child was of age. Falsifying your child's age was a misdemeanor. If a parent showed up at the mill and said that their 12-year-old son wanted to work, there wasn't motivation for the manager at the mill to do any sort of investigating into the kid's age. That 1907 law specified that the mill would only get in trouble if they knowingly violated the age limits, remember? They were safer not to probe into it. Even if they did want to check, the documentation would probably be something else provided by the parents, which could be changed. Alabama didn't start providing birth certificates until 1908, so at the time of Hines' visit, anyone over the age of two wouldn't have had one if they were born in state. Also, the family situation as described here, an older parent in poor health and children too young to work by today's standards, is another example of what led to children working in these dangerous conditions to start with. If the Baldwin's dad wasn't well enough to have a full-time job, or if medical care was expensive, they may have needed another source of income. Seeing the photo of these mill families and tenement houses they've rented, it's clear that the parents were not just sending their kids off to get rich from their labor. Another set of photos from 1913 had a different boy, this one in overalls and a brimmed hat. Quote, Charlie Foster has a steady job at the Merrimack Mills. School record says he is now 10 years old. His father told me he could not read, and still he is putting him into the mill. End quote. Also, if you're wondering if that's where the Charlie Foster coffee shop in West Huntsville got its name, yes, yes it is. The boy in their logo is an artsy rendering of one of the two Hein photos of the real Charlie Foster, and something that stuck out to me about Foster is that he looked at the camera and smiled. Almost no one smiled in the Hein photos. There were some themes throughout the pictures, aside from the general lack of smiles. Girls always had their hair tied up off their shoulders, usually in a bun or braids pinned to their heads. When you think about how painful it could be to get your hair caught in a piece of machinery, this makes sense. Lots of the people, kids and adults, had visible stains and tears on their clothes. There's also a lot of trash on the dirt sidewalks, and multiple photos show children without shoes on standing in these conditions in front of houses. I also noticed that in many of the group photos, there were often one or more glaring adult men in the background. At first I chalked this up to just them being startled that some random guy was taking their picture, or maybe they were just tired from work, but then I realized, those are probably security guards. There are no photos from inside the mills in Huntsville, though on occasion Hein seems to have gained access to other factories with child laborers since he photographed them at work in other cities. 
All of the Huntsville pictures are of children outside. As Susanna Lieberman pointed out in a 2003 edition of Huntsville Historical Review, quote, Both Dallas and Merrimack must have been well guarded because Hine was not able to sneak in, as was his practice when he was not freely admitted. In many other areas, he would gain admittance by trickery. Sometimes he posed as a Bible salesman or an industrial photographer. He used any scheme that helped him enter the places where children labored. End quote. At their height, there were four schools in the Mill Villages, Risen, Lincoln, Joe Bradley, and West Huntsville. However, before proper schools were built and developed, small groups would meet in makeshift classrooms. In December of 1913, Hine photographed Merrimack Mills' school and described it as, quote, tucked away upstairs over the store, equipped with antique, dilapidated benches and chairs. The lessons begin at 6 a.m. and last for six hours, and these children who attend in the morning go to the mill in the afternoon, and vice versa for the required eight weeks, which the law specifies. Taking everything into consideration, it shows what a travesty vocational guidance may become, and it is in itself the best example of do the boys' call I have ever seen, except that it is not half so practical as was Squeer's school. End quote. Let me explain that last bit. In discussing the mill schools, Hine often drew comparisons to Charles Dickens's Nicholas Nickleby, an 1839 book about a boy who, among other disasters, is sent away by a spiteful uncle to a school run by an abusive con artist. The school, called Do the Boys, spelled like Do the Boys, is run by a guy named Squeers, who takes in children neglected by society and then proceeds to spend all of their tuition money on himself and his family while abusing and not teaching the children. So Hines saying that the Merrimack school in 1913 is like the Judah Boys school, but worse, is quite the statement. And no, the irony is not lost on me that Hines' point of reference on these failing schools was in fact a piece of classical literature that I'm guessing many in that school had not read. This isn't meant to paint everyone involved in the lives of the Mill children as fully disinterested in their lives and well-being. There were educational programs and family activities and social events in the Mill villages, many of which I'll discuss in part two of the Mill's feature. And it's not as though Alabamians were against compulsory education and raising the minimum wage for factory workers. Governor Comer, in 1914, went on to blame child labor on, quote, the liquor habit, end quote. But that is a story for another episode. At this point, children weren't inherently required to attend a school, but children employed in mills had to have spent at least eight weeks attending school, six of them consecutive, each year. Hence the school set up in Heinz photo. Alabama finally got its compulsory education law passed in 1915, with two years to prep before it would be enacted in 1917. This allowed time to hire teachers, find school buildings, etc. before it would be enacted. Much like the early child labor laws, the first compulsory education law in Alabama had a lot of loopholes. A 1939 study on Alabama school attendance describes the law and its loopholes in this way. Quote, the statute provided that children 8 to 15 years of age, inclusive, must attend school 80 days, which the county or city board of education could reduce to 60 days. Children having completed the 7th grade were exempted, as were those living more than two and one-half miles from school without transportation and reasonable distance, those absent because of emergency or domestic necessity, those physically or mentally incapacitated, those without necessary clothing or books, and those whose work is necessary to support themselves or their families. End quote. A few things. One, for reference, Huntsville City Schools has 180 student days planned for the 2020 to 2023 school year, so that's 100 fewer days required in 1917. Two, that last bullet point is in fact a huge loophole. The uh, work was necessary to support themselves or their families. And three, the enforcement of this law was really only applied to white children. You may remember Bessie Russell from the Cemetery Stroll episode. Among other things, like librarian and historian, she was a teacher, and part of her career was spent at the Mill School in West Huntsville. She said that, when compulsory education laws kicked in in 1917, 
There was one week where she left on Friday with a class of 30 students and returned on Monday to find 80 pupils waiting for her. Also in 1915, the legislature passed a new child labor law that addressed many concerns from the 1907 law. It said that by 1916, no one under 14 could work, outside of agricultural and domestic services, with the exception of 12- and 13-year-old boys being allowed to work in stores and offices, in towns with populations below 25,000, only when schools are not in session. They also limited the hours of anyone under 16, except in agricultural and domestic service again, to 60 per week and never at night. Specific job tasks were explicitly forbidden too, with a long list of machinery given as off-limits to anyone under 16. They also banned working with acids, so the battery fillers were off the hook. The law tightened up requirements for proof of age also, and required all child employees to attend at least eight weeks of school a year. Lastly, the law said, quote, The presence of any child under 16 years of age in any mill, factory, or workshop, laundry, or mechanical establishment shall be prima facie evidence of its employment therein. End quote. In other words, it should be easier to hold the mills accountable if someone underage appears to be working there. The aforementioned Sesswick Centennial booklet by Sarah Huff Fisk has the following to add regarding child labor and education at Merrimack. Quote, Because of the difficulty in enforcing the laws on compulsory education during its first years of existence, it is hard to say when child labor in the plant came to an end, though its end probably came earlier here than in many sections of the state because of the deep interest Mr. Bradley felt for children of the community. End quote. Bradley was the manager of Merrimack at the time, credited with starting a school and hospital for mill workers. He's going to come up a lot in part two of this episode. I have to wonder what those children and their families, or Huntsvillians as a whole, thought of Hine. He came in, visited with mill workers and photographed them, then what? I've not found any mention of him following up with them after the fact. It was interesting, too, how the Huntsville Times talked about Hine and his work. In 1914, they ran a story entitled, Horrible Child Labor Conditions in Cotton Mills, with the subtitle, Conference at Washington to discuss whether federal government should intervene. The story mentioned Hine having investigated Southern Mills, but they only talk about his having visited and photographed locations in the Carolinas. There's literally no mention of the fact that he was in Huntsville, or even that the dangerous working conditions for children also existed in our town. It's weird to think about how much the different parts of Huntsville have changed over the years, from the space race boom to the numerous courthouses, but the transition from mills to modern hangout spots always gets me the most. I love building reuse, when possible, and Huntsville has a lot of that. The names are still there. Merrimack Hall Performing Arts Center, Dallas Mill Deli, Low Mill Arts and Entertainment, Lincoln Mill Village, etc. But I get so used to saying them that it's easy to forget what they mean and what those sites were. It's really telling regarding how far we've come as a city that the sites of exploited preteen workers running amongst dangerous textiles machinery are now home to shops, restaurants, bars, offices, concert venues, and so many other things that people in 1915 couldn't have imagined. There's also a lot to be said still about modern labor conditions for children and adults, wages, etc. in the garment industry, as well as the impact fast fashion has on both the environment and current textile workers here and abroad, and I definitely encourage people to look into that, but there are a lot better resources on that than a local history podcast. That's all for part one of Lily Flag Signal's series on Huntsville's Mills. Check back in next week for part two, aka the season one finale, for more of a deep dive into the history of these mills themselves, who started them, what each mill did, and what life was like in the mill villages. There are also rivalries and a little bit of architecture, so that's cool. If you somehow found this podcast without first finding our website or social media, you can get to those at lilyflagpodcast.wordpress.com and on Instagram at lilyflagpodcast. In both cases, that's L-I-L-Y-F-L-A-G-G podcast two G's and flag. There's only one show left in the season before the winter hiatus when I crawl back into my cave and nap on top of a pile of microfilm and old notebooks with my cats, 
Um, in all seriousness, I'll be spending the next two months prepping for season two with interviews, writing, lots of trips to libraries, and even some videos for an upcoming collaboration that will be announced soon. So for the rest of this year, podcast-wise, there's just one more regular episode and then a very special surprise podcast in December. You won't have to miss us though, as I'll still be posting almost daily to the show's Instagram with fun facts, episode teasers, and behind-the-scenes adventures and research. So smile in your photos, cite your sources, and I'll talk to you next week in part two of Milling Around.